0: The limited partner shares in the potential outsized returns of a well-planned and executed investment. But as a passive investor with no day-to-day operating requirements, whose liability is limited to the extent of their share of ownership, the limited partner has the maximum leverage on their most precious asset, their time. Now they say you're the average of the people you surround yourself with. Are you looking to elevate your network, connect with individuals that bring your average up? The Limited Partner is more than just a podcast. It's a community to learn, to participate, to connect. There's no other community out there like this for Limited Partners. So subscribe to the podcast, but most importantly, join the community at thelimitedpartner.com. Welcome to the podcast with your host, Jake Wiley. Welcome, partners. This is your host, Jake Wiley. This week, I'm joined by Brian Adams. He's the founder of Excelsior Capital. Brian, thank you. coming to the show.
1: Yeah, man. Happy to do it.
0: Well, Brian, I know you really well. And you know, you've been on in prior versions of my podcast, but for the listeners, if you wouldn't mind one more time, maybe going back and giving a little bit of background on who you are and your journey, which I think is pretty interesting, how you got to be the founder of Excelsior. Yeah,
1: happy to do it. So I'm a New Yorker. Originally, that is the name of the firm is the state motto of New York Excelsior ever upward. I went to college in Connecticut where I met my wife who is from Nashville, Tennessee. We moved back 15 years ago. Ago. I practiced law for a couple of years, and then my wife's family has a single-family office based here in Nashville, which is how I got to know John Flack and some of your colleagues through that ecosystem of folks. And I started getting exposure to some of the investments the family was making as an LP with sponsors and GPs and fund managers, and became enamored with real estate as an asset class and really as a business. Connected with my business partner, who's also a New Yorker, and we started the firm 11 years ago initially raising funds then we pivoted to deal by deal syndication which is where we spend the majority of our time and we can get into the details but have roughly a $500 million portfolio of commercial assets throughout the southeast and the midwest at this point
0: that's a great story quick rise kudos to you
1: yeah i'll tell you the real story if you want but yeah that's that's the one that i thought
0: Sounds easy well you know as i think about the audience right is limited partners right that's that's clearly who we're trying to talk with here your background as a sponsor as a gp is really crucial here in, in because our, our limited partners are looking to find the right people to work with. And you know, I think it's sometimes it's easy just to advocate and kind of go with the first person that seems like they've got a good investment. But it, there's a lot of getting to know who you're working with. And, and it's a lot what we stress on the show is doing your due diligence as a limited partner. But I think you've got a really great story is how you went out and started raising capital and kind of doing it the other way, kind of getting to know the potential limited partners and making their investment strategies and, and matching with their investment strategies. But I, it'd be great if maybe walk us through that process and tell us a little bit about how you go about raising capital, how you work with limited partners and how you get your limited partners comfortable with the the properties and the business that you guys have put together.
1: Yeah, sure. Happy to do it. And we can include the link on the show notes, but I put together a presentation because this is the number one question I get from other sponsors, entrepreneurs is, you know, how to raise capital as a first time sponsor or entrepreneur in this business. And it really starts from the reality that in commercial real estate, it's a capital intensive business right? I mean, you are constantly raising, you're constantly prospecting, and you won't succeed unless you have somebody internal to the organization on a C-suite level focused on this. And sometimes sponsors can feel uncomfortable saying that. They don't want prospects or the current investors to know how much time and energy they spend on raising because they want them entirely focused on the deals. But I found that if you're transparent about it, and if you tell people, listen, the reason that you can get exposure, to these types of investments at a lower minimum is because we have a very robust internal capital raising process and system. I think that's a very defensible way to put things in perspective for investors because that's important, right? Folks can participate in my $5 million equity raise for $50,000 because we take our capital raising, investor relations, and marketing very seriously. And that's part of our business. And so you've got to have that reality, right? I think the biggest challenge I see are people that say, oh, well, once we get large enough, or once we have enough AUM, once we have enough overhead, I'm going to outsource this to a third party. We're going to pay somebody to raise the money for us. Mine, that's a big red flag because nobody can tell the story as well as you can. And really, as you alluded to earlier, this is a trust business between the GP and the LP. And it's important, I think, that there's not too many intermediaries or layers between those two groups because at the end of the day, that's what this is. You're bringing these two entities together into a Collective investment vehicle to acquire these properties. So that's just how I kind of think about the business. What I often see from a fact pattern standpoint, that doesn't do well. And I certainly did this initially. So I know from experience, oftentimes people will go out and they'll find the investment itself. They'll find the deal, they'll find the property, and they'll spend a ton of time on this, right? They'll do the diligence, the comp set, they'll talk to the brokerage community, they'll do all the homework on it. And they'll say, this is a great deal. And the goes something like this. I'm really smart. This is a great deal. And you, the investor, the prospect need to invest in it. And they'll spend all of their time and energy sourcing the opportunity putting it all together. They'll spend none of their time pre-marketing or pre-selling the opportunity or the idea or the investment thesis to the prospective investor. And they'll ground and pound, right? They'll, they'll realize, Oh, I need to raise two, $3 million. They'll reach out to their friends and family in a, in a fairly haphazard manner. And and they'll try to jam it down their throats and they'll say no I'm really smart this is a great deal I did all this work on it you need to do it and that doesn't usually go very well to your investor base because they're unprepared and your shiny beautiful object may not meet the needs or solve the problems of this network of
0: investors that you have now an interesting question there for you Brian because I think everybody the, the first piece of advice you get when you go raise money or you say you're going to raise money is just go find a great deal and the investors will come. Like, that's it. Like, that is advice number one that you get 95% of the time. And you're going down a different path here. And I think this is really important
1: a big problem in the industry is to exactly your point, there's this adage out there that, oh, you'll raise on a good deal. Like a good deal raises itself. And that is complete garbage, in my opinion, and it couldn't be farther from the truth. And I had a mentor early on in my career tell me that if you have a wonderful deal, if it's a beautiful, bright, shiny object, but you can't raise capital around it, that bright, shiny object is art. It's not a business. And there's a place for art, right? There's a wonderful world for it. But unless you can sell it, unless it's scalable, and repeatable and sellable, it's not a business. So you might have the best deal in the world, but if you can't raise capital, if you can't raise equity, if you can't source debt on it and you can't acquire it and close it, nobody cares.
0: That's a great point.
1: So what I've done through a lot of of trial and error is I have this empathetic approach to, to capital raising, to sales, right? So what I tell people to do in my presentation is if you are considering going out and trying to raise capital at some point, And we're going to get pretty granular here because I think a lot of people just kind of give high level advice. It's not very helpful. Grab a cup of coffee, glass of wine or cocktail, and you write down a list of a hundred people that you know, that will take your phone call, that will take a meeting that are within your initial first degree network. It's going to be friends and family, et cetera, classmates. And you write them in rank order from the most sophisticated affluent people to the least sophisticated affluent people, starting at one and going to a hundred. This is not a judgment call on Them as people. They could be wonderful people, but this is the business that we're in. You're asking for money. This is important. And your gut. Instinct is probably pretty spot on, right? So you start at the top with the most affluent, sophisticated investor that you know, and you go all the way down to 100. And you reach out to that list, starting at number one, and you do not ask them for money because if you want money, ask for advice. If you want advice, ask for money. You go to them and you say, "Hey, you know, Aunt Jill, can I buy you a cup of coffee, or can I get 20 minutes on the phone with you? I want to ask you advice." And they'll say yes because people like to be told that they're smart and they know what they're doing, and that they can give you advice. It's like an ego trip for them. So they will say yes. When you get that meeting, you spend most of the time listening and not saying anything. And you ask them, have you invested in commercial real estate before? Okay. What was that experience like? What was the positive portion of it? What did you not like? What were some of the negative components of it? If you could paint me a picture of the perfect commercial real estate investment, what would it look like? And nothing can be too small here, right? No detail is too insignificant. So you want to get into how would you want to be pitched? What would you want? initial email? What diligence materials would you want included? Would you want in video format? Would you want a follow-up call? Would you want to do a Zoom? Would you want to do a a webinar about it? Do you want drone footage? What would be compelling from cash on cash yield, IRR, multiple uninvested capital? What type of commercial real estate would interest you? What geographic location would interest you? What would be a realistic allocation that you would make to one investment, right? Would it be a dollar, a hundred thousand dollars, a million? What would you want that Investor experience to look like. Paint me the picture from the minute that I pitch you, from when you convert into the deal to then on a daily, weekly, monthly, quarterly, annual basis. What would you want the reporting to be like? How often do you want distributions, etc. Right? I mean, you go really deep into this, and you do this for all hundred people, and you're writing notes, maybe you know recording some of these conversations if they're okay with it, and you're tracking all of this. Once you have all the data, you're going to see a lot of themes, right, within the those hundred people, most of these folks are going to say, "Yeah, I really want stable, cash-flowing properties." Or, "Man, I'm really risk on. I want development deals. I want big IRR. I want big multiple. I want ground-up risk, and I don't care about day one cash flow. Whatever it is, you're going to thematic all of this and group them, and then you're going to go find a deal that will match what they want. Right? You're going to bring them something that will solve their problems. And at the end of these conversations, you will say, "Hey, listen. Thank you so much for the time. At some point, I'm going to be in touch." With an investment, is it okay if I reach back out to you when I have something that's actionable? And they're all going to say yes, of course. That sounds great. Okay, so the, in the meantime, you're keeping them updated with your efforts, right? Like I'm looking for deals, I'm putting together a team, I'm doing my diligence once a month. You know, you're doing something on social media, et etc. So once you find the deal, you then go to them and you say, Hey, this isn't so much as a pitch. Is I understand these are your pain points and these are the problems. I'm bringing you a solution set that can help solve them for you. And you're taking away, You know, I think the average attention span these days is about 12 minutes. You don't want the initial part of your pitch to be wasted with all these questions about what's the fee load? What's the reporting? How often am I going to get distributions? What's the structure? Like you've taken all that off the table because you know exactly what they want to look like. So you're only talking about the opportunity the investment thesis and the upside because everything else you've already taken off. So you can have five, 10 minutes of really focused attention. And this is important. You start from 100 and you work your way up to one on that same list, right? You don't want to waste your first couple of pitches on your best prospects. So you work the inverse so that hopefully by the 25th to 50th pitch, you know how to deal with the pushback. You know, the questions they're going to ask, you understand kind of what the points that you want to emphasize are versus the ones that you don't. So that from 50 to one at your best prospects, you're really good at the pitch. If you have a partner, you know, who does which part of the pitch and who tells the story the best way, et cetera. And in my opinion, that kind of empathetic, put the ego to the side, don't talk about you, talk about the investor and bring them a solution set is the most efficient way to raise capital.
0: I I definitely want to highlight what you just said. And I think it was very clear when you said it. But so when you go through the list and you rank order from one to 100, you're starting with your best prospect is one. When you find the deal, you start pitching at 100, being that you're working through the mechanics and going through the exercise to kind of perfect it as you move up the ladder of sophistication and potential to take your deal. I think that's such an interesting way of thinking about it and and brilliant. And, you know, obviously by the time you get to the top, you should be pretty damn good.
1: Yeah, because you don't want to go to Uncle Bill. who's like your rich uncle. Start the pitch and he's like, is this going to be ordinary income or capital gains? And you're like, "Uh, uh, let me get back to you. That will come up earlier. You don't want your at-bats to be with your best prospects initially. And frankly, the dollar figures will be inverse. And, And this is where people get, I think, really challenged is I'll get a call from somebody saying, hey, I've got this $100 million equity raise for this development deal and wherever, and I'm having trouble raising on it. What's your background? Like, oh, I was an enlisted soldier in the Army, and, and most of my folks are in that world. Like, well, I don't care if it's a great deal. You know, that's a lot of equity to raise. It's just not realistic, right? I mean, my numbers, we in terms of like, I've got 5,000 people on my distribution list. Roughly 500 will open up the email, and roughly Roughly 50 will invest. So that's a 1% type of conversion rate. The numbers are pretty consistent. I think you've got to be realistic with what you can do with your network. Again, it's not a judgment on you or your friends or the people that you know. It's just a reality check here. I mean, these are the numbers that are pretty consistent across the industry. And the same goes for me, right? Just because I can raise 3 or $4 million of equity on an opportunity, I can't raise 30. Like, I don't know institutional LPs. I don't know what makes them tick. They don't know me. I don't know the right way to pitch them. I'm not bringing them a solution set for their problems. I can't go to CalPERS. I can't go to a big pension plan or endowment. I don't know any of those people. They don't know me. I don't it just won't work. Right. So, you've got to be again realistic with what you can or can't do within your network. And that's where understand the allocations and the minimums and what people are capable of doing. And you can kind of go up or down the spectrum. Right. I mean, over time but your first time out of the gate, you know, I've just seen a lot of people fail because they think they have this wonderful deal. But again, if people don't know
0: you, if you haven't established that relationship, it's going to be really challenging. I think, I think that's great advice. And I think for the LPs that are listening, you know, the takeaway and, and I've watched and listened to this presentation. So look at the link in the show notes, cause it's really worth watching. But you know, the idea of getting educated on the investment, what you're looking for and then providing, because you know, the, the interesting thing, I mean, a good point you brought up is that there may be people that don't want cash back. Like, like, don't send me cash back. Like I don't want cash. I'm trying to put cash to work. And if you pitch them a deal, that's like, yeah, you'll get weekly distributions. They're going to be like, oh, like deals great, but I don't want that. Right. I don't even want to deal with it. And when you know these things, like you, you actually can build your investments in a way that can account for that. Right. And there's different classes of you know equity that you can put in there and it gets a little bit more sophisticated. I want to pivot a little bit because you and I both went through this journey kind of starting with COVID where we got into podcasting and education and it really changed the nature of your business because what, what we're talking about is the coffees, the steak dinners, which I think is important for, you know, kind of getting off the ground and really understanding your business. But, you know, kind of flipping the script to where you are now, it's a different world. And you've, you've moved into a world where, I mean, one, you, you post all of the time, you've got great insightful posts. I, admittedly, like you've told me, this is like, you spent a lot of time doing that, right? And you've had people even question like, well, how are you, how can you run all these deals if you're, you know, spending all this time, you know, educating? I'd like to talk about that because I think it's really important and it's really changed your business. If you wouldn't mind kind of sharing a little bit of the transition in your story?
1: Yeah. I think early on in my career, when I was doing the ground and pound first person ego type pitch, I would try to have three meetings a day and five kind of phone calls. So kind of coffee, breakfast, lunch, coffee, dinner, drinks, et cetera. And um, it, you can make that work, but it's not very efficient for you. And it's not very efficient for your investors or your prospects. And so what I pivoted during COVID towards was a inbound marketing concept where I create content on a multimedia platforms, be it podcasts, webinars, LinkedIn, blogs, et cetera. And I create educational content in the hope that people find value there. And that I build that relationship of trust with them. And then eventually, you know, they, get to know me enough that they come into the website or they reach out to me and we start a relationship on an investing level. And the hard part is, you know, a lot of sponsors and GBs, including myself, think we're really smart and we're hardworking, which we are. It doesn't mean that LPs need to have a three-hour steak dinner with you to get to know you every time, right? I still think big relationships... They are going to have to be in person at some point. But initially, that initial screening process, right? Like, am I providing a solution set for you? Am I the right relationship for you? Most of that can be taken care of without having to do what I call the kabuki theater of the coffee meeting, where, we, you know, we meet and we talk and we do the Q&A and the back and forth. Most of that can be done on your own time, right? I mean, you can find me, for better or worse, all over the internet at this point. And you can find out exactly who we are, what we do, who we work with. The type of things that we do on your own time, right? So uh, I'm not taking up an hour of your precious time. You can do it probably in 10 or 15 minutes over the North Atlantic on an airplane or at your home on an evening or while you're on the driving to work. And then you can see if it's a fit or not. You know, I know this show is oriented towards limited partners and people kind of question, well, why would I do a a workshop about how to raise capital? Like, what good does that do for me? I think the big takeaway is for limited partners, the question that they don't ask that I think should be the first thing they ask is not about the deal, but about the investor journey and the investor experience, right? Because we all hope the deals work. No sponsor is going to go out there and pitch a deal that they don't believe in. And hopefully they all work, right? Sometimes they don't, sometimes they're in the middle. But the experience, what it feels like daily, weekly, monthly, quarterly, annually to be a limited partner, what the reporting expectations are, what the distributions are, what it looks like from a communication standpoint, what infrastructure that you have from a technological perspective that enables you to access your deals, right? Do you have an investor relations portal? If somebody, if you email the GP, How soon can you expect a response? How robust will that response be? What does the internal team look like that's going to make that journey remarkable for you? These are the questions that LPs don't tend to ask, but I think they make all the difference in the world when it comes down to what ultimately you feel like that investor investment kind of has been for you.
0: Thank you for clarifying that, right? Because it is the reason I would recommend going to listen to the presentation is that when you get into an LP deal, I mean, let's be honest, it's it's a little bit of a marriage, right? Five to seven your holds. There might be some ways you can get out, but it's not advantageous. If you get into one that maybe not as well baked as it should have been, I mean, it's going to be a long time before you're, you're able to cycle that you know, that capital and go into another. And you know, frankly, especially if you're on the earlier side of your LP career, you're probably going to wait and hold and see how it goes before you jump in again. So therefore doing a really good job on the front end, understanding what questions to ask. And then what I like about your presentation is that you're thinking about it from the LP side. What are you looking for? And then you go through all the questions and try and draw them out. And you're not just saying like, hey, what would be a good deal? And you're like, oh, I don't know, like multifamily deal in Memphis sounds great, right? Like, like what about distributions? What about your returns? Like what are all those things looking like? I think that is so important. And you just give it away. And the other thing that I think is is great and you know you and I have become friends over the past couple of years. Even before I knew you, I knew you because you're online and I feel like when we pick up our conversations, like it's like we've been talking the whole time because I hear your voice and I see what you're thinking all of the time. And, you know, there's a psychological sales maxim out there. It's like the rule of seven, right? Like you've got to be in front of somebody seven times before you kind of break down that psychological barrier of like you're a stranger to like, I feel like I know you. And I think that your presence out there and your transparency makes that work so well for you. I know what investments you guys have. I know what you're thinking about. I know what risks are coming down. On the pike that you guys are thinking about, you know, like what's the Fed doing? Like I know all of that because I see it, and I like that transition. It's something I, I personally believe in. Obviously, I'm hosting a podcast, but I do want to give you kudos for that because I think that's such an important transition that you made. And for me personally, and I know a lot of other people out there because uh, you, your investor pool, your your numbers have increased dramatically because other people feel that way.
1: Yeah. And. I think for LPs, if you're an individual or a family, the stakes have gone up because of technology in terms of it's not good enough that the deals work, right? Because I think now, from a GP perspective and the sponsor, my role is to provide value beyond the investments. And so the expectation is that I create value in terms of content, networking, educational experiences or opportunities to show people other best in class managers, other best ideas, niche strategies, because the investment side is getting smoother, frankly, because of technology. It's much more efficient, which it should be. But that also means that GPs and sponsors need to do more to just show up with deals, I think. And, and I think LPs need to push them a little bit more because we, we can be doing more. I've got a great role of folks, service providers, financial and professional that I can make introductions to that can be helpful to my LPs. And that's where understanding if you're an LP, understanding where the GP is focused and oriented towards in their investment community will impact your experience, right? Because if you're a mix between institutional and accredited, it's going to be harder for them, right? Because the introductions that CalPERS wants are different than if you're trying to find an internship for your son or daughter that's just graduating college. Or if you want to learn about other investment managers and other sponsors and other niche strategies, the institutional folks don't really care. But the accreditor space, I think that's ultimately what they want, right? And that's where when we think about providing value beyond the investments, it's all about access, education, and peer networking.
0: Couldn't have said it better. Well, Brian, this is always love talking to you. So thank you for being on the show again. I always like to finish the show with a little bit of gratitude. None of us got to where we are because we did this all on our own. And uh, I'd like to give you the opportunity to give Somebody a shout out that maybe a couple of people that gave you a leg up along the way that you'd like to say thank you.
1: Yeah, so this is where I would recognize the privilege I have of marrying into a very affluent family and having a father in law and a CIO that have experience within the private equity space. Right, it just gave me a huge advantage, and so I like to thank them for opening up my eyes into this world that I didn't know existed. And also the team members that I brought on over the last two years. You know, they've all worked really hard. They believed in the story early on. And what we're able to accomplish and have allowed us to scale efficiently. And obviously, you know, I did a gratitude post New Year's, but to the investors, right? I mean, to your point, this is a trust business. There are folks that come in that may never have met me. They hear me on a show. We have a phone call. We get to know each other. And then they trust me with their capital to hopefully grow it and be a good fiduciary for them. And that's something that I don't take lightly. So those are kind of the three big buckets is the family, my colleagues, at work, and then obviously the investor pool, which has grown, and a lot of it's through warm introductions and referrals, which are you know hugely appreciated. But those are the three groups that I'd like to call
0: out. Awesome. Well, to my my network, my partners out there, you know, Brian's the real deal. I definitely recommend you go check him out. If you like what you heard today, there'll be a link to his um, presentation that he mentioned, and then obviously to connect with Brian as well. But Brian, thank you for being on the show. This is a great conversation.
1: Yes, sir. Best of luck with it moving forward. It's a cool concept. Thanks.
0: I hope you've enjoyed this episode of The Limited Partner Podcast. Please subscribe and leave a review. If there's any reason you wouldn't leave us a five-star review, please email me directly at jw at jakewiley.com. Your feedback is always appreciated. Now the show is just the tip of the iceberg in terms of the limited partner community. It's a community where limited partners can come together, learn about what best in class looks like, opportunities, and most importantly, a place to connect. There is nothing out there like this. So head over to thelimitedpartner.com and sign up. We'll see you next time.